Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's my pleasure today to have a guest from my alma mater, Cat Code. Hi, Cat. Hi. Cat Code is the founder of Binary Tattoo with a mission to help safeguard your data and digital identity. Backed by over two decades of experience in mobile development and software architecture, as well as a certification in data privacy law, CAT helped corporations and individuals better understand cybersecurity and data privacy. CAT is an engineer, speaker, consultant, author, and above all else, a parent. Her motivation to help others was born out of her concern for her kids and the new generation growing up in an ever-changing digital landscape. Kat's passion for electronics was evident as early as grade seven when she took pleasure in disassembling and reassembling calculators. She graduated from the University of Waterloo where she earned a degree in electrical engineering and a minor in computer engineering. After some early experience designing computer games, Kat joined Research in Motion, better known today as BlackBerry, where she devoted more than a decade in designing complex software and leading teams of smart people. Kat is also a gym rat and a health nut. She loves dancing, musicals, and bad tween entertainment. If you ask her, she'll blame it on her child's babysitter. We'll get into that uh, a little later. So Kat, how did you get started with cybersecurity and privacy? Uh, great question. All right, so as you had mentioned, I spent a considerable amount of time working at BlackBerry, uh, which was Research in Motion at the time, uh, where Apple seemed to have like the sexiness of the device and uh, cool features. BlackBerry's basis was on security. So uh, my first a real long-term job after gaming, uh, was in architecture and software development in a device that put security first. So everything we were doing was privacy and security focused, including the way we developed the operating system. And uh, I was there for over a decade. And, and at the end of my career there, uh, I was running the architecture team for the handheld software. And so again, it was really a privacy first notion. And, and so coming off of having worked there, it was, it was really foundational to me to actually move into privacy and security and help other people understand why that was so critical. And I used to work at BlackBerry in my past life as well. And I remember that 10 to 15 years ago, there was this whole notion of Blackberries being business devices versus yeah. other things like Apple devices were really meant for personal use or not really meant for hardcore business needs. So that's, that's very, um, very interesting that you, you mentioned that. My first question for you really is around the name of your company, Binary Tattoo. Can you tell us how you came to call it that? So the explanation I give when I introduce myself is that binary is the language of all things digital. And tattoo, of course, for the permanence of everything that we're putting online and into digital devices. So when you go online and you enter in anything at all, you are creating this binary tattoo. And very much like a real tattoo, you can remove it or correct it, but it is expensive and very painful. The reason where I got that name is I actually have a binary tattoo. <laughs> 
um, on my back. And uh, I had met someone at a conference and she had commented on my tattoo. And when I went to reconnect with her after, I figured she probably wouldn't have remembered who I was. She'd met so many people that evening. So I referred to myself as the girl with the binary tattoo. And then a friend of mine said that should just be the name of your company. <laughs> that's it. That's perfect. That's perfect. So it defines your identity. Yes, that's historically where it came from. But uh, it resonates very well with kids too. I mean, they understand the reason why they can't have tattoos is because of the permanence. And so you wouldn't you wouldn't get a tattoo one day and then change your mind the next week. And it should be the same consideration we have about what we're actually putting online. So I know that your kids are a big driver in kind of pushing you into the field of data privacy. So for our audience here, why would you say that data privacy today is ever so important um, more now than ever before? I think it's it's been developed over the last sort of decade. Uh, most people are not as tech savvy about what they're putting online as they think they are. And uh, even when I go talk to people in the technical fields, even other developers, uh, if you haven't actually read the terms and conditions on any of these software platforms, which I can tell you when I ask again in a room, I'll get one person who put up their hand uh, who admits to reading them because nobody does. Uh, Are they lawyers usually? I don't, there's just, I don't know. It's just the one person. <laughs> It's one person. Um, probably. They probably are lawyers. I've read them. They're boring uh, and long. And uh, you don't realize what you're agreeing to give away. So when I started this, I looked into what's called the APIs, which are the way that coders get access to information inside the systems. And so I thought, okay, if I'm a developer for Facebook, what does that mean? And when reading the code, it said, you know, if I connect as a Facebook app or, you know, the social sign-ons when you use Google or Facebook or LinkedIn to sign on to another app. And I, I looked at the quantity of information that those apps were sharing back. And that's what sort of got me into that side where I said, do you realize it's not just this piece of information, you're also sharing all of this other stuff. And, uh, and that's where sort of this was born from, where I think we have faith, like, Nobody questions the safety of a microwave, but I, very few people actually know how it works, right? You just know it heats your food. So it's the same thing I find with things like Facebook and Google. Like, you know, Google's just going to search your results. You don't stop to think how much data it's collecting on you when you're doing that to get you the results you need or what Facebook might be doing in order to set you up with the right people online so you can share photos. We don't question the technology that comes into our lives. And because the regulations and laws around how these technologies were being built didn't exist when they were built, they were able to take all sorts of liberties with data that they should never have been able to take. That's so true. And sometimes I find it fascinating that when I search for something versus when someone else searches for the same exact keyword on Google or whatever search engine, the results and the order of the results tend to vary significantly based on maybe my um, web browsing habits or content in my email or things I've clicked on in the past from Google advertisements, et cetera. It's very tailored. And it's sometimes amazing that you, you get that level of customization on a user-by-user -user basis from a service like Google. But it's also interesting that they have this ability and the amount of data that they're gathering about you to be able to serve you unique views on things that are most relevant to you 
based on your search. I always find that absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I tell people to use all their search engines like DuckDuckGo that don't have tracking in them in order to search themselves so you can know what else is out there about you. Because if you search yourself, it's going to give you back websites that you typically travel to. Uh, so I always liken it to like Google is like your best friend where you are like, hey, what should I have for lunch? And your friend knows you. They know what you have in your kitchen. They know what you like. And they're going to be like, hey, have pizza. You love pizza. Um, whereas other services don't know you well enough. It's like me asking a stranger on the street what I should have for lunch. They're going to say, I have no idea. I don't know what your diet is. I have no, like, no clue what kind of food you like. <laughs> so we get accustomed to that customization, like you're saying, but it's based on so much information. It's a trade-off. It's not a bad thing. It's just you have to appreciate the trade-off. It's a big trade-off, actually. So I've switched to doing anonymous browsing now where, you know, I don't log into any Google account. I search anonymously. Browsers give you that private, private browsing feature. And I find that sometimes I miss that customization because the results aren't as relevant to me as I would like it to be. And I do miss that sometimes. So, yes. so in particular, um, in the field of data privacy, there's a new regulation that's getting a lot of visibility for the last few years called GDPR. Can you share with us uh, what is GDPR and, and how it's affecting organizations today? Absolutely. So GDPR is based from the EU, so the European Union, and it's the General Data Protection Regulation. And it's essentially a set of rules that should have been in place a long time ago. So they took, like I had said, the software products have advanced in a way without regulations and rules. And uh, Europe's always had privacy laws, but they finally put their foot down and said, you can't use and abuse individuals' data without their knowledge and consent of what they're doing. Uh, so they, they put this regulation in place. The real basis is around the individual first. So pieces of this include the fact that, again, you have to have consent to collect data from people. They have to have a clear understanding, like even the words say, it cannot be this all legalese. They have to have a clear understanding of what you're doing uh, with their data. You have to have a retention period. So um, contact tracing that's going on with COVID-19 is a great example of this. If you're collecting personal data about someone and it's only valid for 60 or 90 days or whatever it is, you need to get rid of that data. If you don't have a legal reason or legal basis, they call it like a business reason to keep the data, you should be deleting it. Uh, and then the users also have individual rights. So they're actually able to go back to a company now and say, I'd like you to show me all the data you have about me. I'd like to be removed from your system, which is new, uh, which is called the right to erasure that people have been talking about. And although this is a European-based regulation, it affects anyone as a customer who is European and any business that's based out of Europe, it, it ends up being fairly global. So we, we say it's Europe-based, but if you're trying to run a company out of North America or India or Africa and you serve European customers, you have to be compliant with GDPR as well. Uh, Brazil is supposed to be launching uh, their LGPD, which is uh, GDPR basically, um, under their law. And uh, eventually Canada will adopt a GDPR-like uh, regulation when, when, they get, when we get around to it. Um, and then the other big one that's recently come out is CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act. That one uh, is more targeted at not having your data specifically resold. 
So that one's really more about um, the fact that the Facebooks and Googles of the world have been taking individuals' data and reselling it without their knowledge. But again, it, it's only a matter of time before other countries and other states and other people get on board with having more of these regulations to protect the individuals. So what are some of the consequences of an organization failing to achieve uh, GDPR compliance? So GDPR has significant fines, and they are already imposing these fines. Uh, Canada, for instance, has a law called PEPIDA that's been in, it's been around for decades, but uh, there's no, it has no legs. Like nobody's, nobody gets fined. So people don't really care about the regulation. But with European Union, uh, there's there are lots of websites, actually, you can look it up if you just type in GDPR fines. Um, there are several websites out there right now that are tracking the fines that are being applied. So there was one great example I saw of a company in Ireland where a user, an individual, had asked to see their information, and they said no, and they asked again several times, and then that individual contacted the Data Protection Authority and said, hey, this customer is not complying with my right. And so that that company was fined $200,000 for not answering the individual. <laughs> wow. And so the, the fines are really based on due diligence. Like everyone is going to be breached in this climate right now. At some point, if you haven't been breached, you will be. And so it's not about whether or not you've been breached. The question is, as a company, have you done the best job you can to protect an individual and their personal information? Have you limited what you're collecting? Are you storing it safely? Um, and, and are you abiding by these rights? So if they ask to see it, you're letting them see it. And if you do that, uh, then you would stand to have small to no fines if you were ever breached. But if you haven't done that, it's like you didn't even try. And then that's where these large fines are coming from. That definitely makes a lot of sense. So with things like GDPR, LGPD, CCPA that are going to start to be much more visible uh, in day-to-day -day software development efforts, where should an organization go to start or where should they go and what steps should they take to make sure that any type of software that they're building is compliant with these regulations? So the regulations themselves are a legal framework. Uh, if you look online, you can pull checklists and things like that uh, from a legal side that says, have you, have you, have you, and you can just check box, you know, do you have a privacy policy that covers the following things? Yes, I do. Do you have an incident response management plan? Yes, I do have, an, have that. Uh, but what I found, because that's what I have been doing is walking corporations through becoming compliant, what I find that the checklist misses is the proper technical implementation of a lot of this stuff. So included in there is privacy by design. And privacy by design is a seven principle um, elements of, of how to best set up, again, individual first privacy over innovation. Uh, it was actually created by Dr. Anne Kavukian, who used to be the privacy commissioner of Ontario in Canada, but it has, it has been adopted globally. So creating a foundation of privacy, ensuring that you've evaluated, again, the data you're collecting, whether you need it, how you're storing it, everything else falls into place. Uh, and then optimizing on some of these things like the checkbox on GDPR for this user right would be, can a user access their data, yes or no? Great. But from a foundational and technical level, how are you authenticating to ensure that the user is who they say they are? How are you optimizing it so that if 
a hundred people request their data on the same day, you can handle that in your company. So setting up the support at the bottom uh, will again help everything else fall into place at the top. That definitely makes sense. We have many customers that we deal with and organizations that we deal with where we, we focus a lot on cybersecurity and many times, especially smaller organizations or startups that are starting to build up um, systems and software, they will complain about how they don't have enough budget to put towards security. And we tend to talk to them and explain how security should be an inherent property of your system. It's not something you add on later or get extra budget for to do later. It should be one of the quality uh, metrics that you should measure. But from your perspective, is data privacy also an inherent property of uh, of a, uh, or if the software ecosystem and and how should people approach it when they have very limited budget or time to dedicate to to that effort? Yeah, I I'm totally with you. This is an inherent problem I have right now, especially with startups, where I'll say, here's what you would need to do to put privacy into place, and they all say we don't have the budget because we need to focus that money on development right now. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's like an insurance policy um, for your company. Just as an example, an incident response plan, the plan itself, if you have a plan in place, it will save you on average a half a million dollars when you have the breach just for having the plan. Because if you don't have the plan, you are scrambling to find your stakeholders, to get on a phone bridge, to figure out who you need to contact to do your forensics. So just the act of having a plan. Creating a plan should take your company less than a week, and you could either do it on your own or hire a consultant in to do it. It should be less than $10,000 from start to finish in resources, and it saves you half a million. So every piece of this, like by putting privacy in place, it will, it reduces your risk of the breach. It reduces your risk that um, every time I see a breach and the passwords are shared, it makes me shake my head because if they'd just taken the time to hash the passwords, which is where you hide them in code instead of in plain text, it's a couple extra lines of development time to create that code. Uh, It's a little bit of overhead work, but it would save you having leaked data. If your password's get leaked and they're encrypted or hashed, there's no leak. So you don't have to notify people. You don't have the reputation damage. Uh, But yeah, it's always hard to sell someone kind of like you're saying with cybersecurity, you're selling them insurance on what could happen. I think the farther we go to where people realize it's not, again, if it could happen, it will happen. It will definitely happen. So let us help you now for less money and get the setup properly. Uh, so that you don't have these large fines and reputation costs and everything down the line. And password storage is such a great example because we see that everywhere. You hear about this data breach, about passwords being breached and people losing user IDs and passwords of their customers. And I think it deserves its own podcast episode talking about techniques to securely store passwords so that in the case of a breach, uh, attackers can't reverse engineer what the original password was. Uh, but we'll have to deal with that later. Um, Another question I have for you is, as a person or an end user of all these software systems and the user of the internet, what can someone do individually to make sure that their data is being protected or that they're not divulging too much information that puts them at risk? 
The number one thing people can do is privacy settings. I always tell people there is inevitably some time where you're waiting. <laughs> so if you're waiting for someone somewhere, instead of playing a game or sitting on your favorite social network, go into your privacy settings and go through each individual setting. Uh, one of the biggest areas is applications that are using your microphone or your camera or your location or all three. And uh, inevitably, I tell everyone that and always people come back and said, I had no idea I was giving away this information here, there, and there. So if you haven't explicitly turned off microphone use, it is listening to you at all times. You've basically, again, if you read the terms and conditions, have allowed it to do that. So people were saying to me, you know, I swear I was talking about going somewhere, like I was talking about going to New York, and now I'm getting all these ads for New York. I don't get it. I'm like, are you near a phone? <laughs> are you near a computer? Um, I actually walked into, and I've turned everything off. I walked into a store the other day. I didn't even buy anything. And then I started getting ads from that store. And I thought, what is on my phone that triggered that? There was some, some location, location tracking of some sort from right? some app. But I, I have turned them all off. So, uh, but I have an iPhone and with iPhone, you can't, if you turn off your location at the root, it's off for everything. And so that's yes. one of those ones where I have it turned off and then you go through it and I have everything else to only track while being used. So if I open the weather app, it figures out where I am. If I open a traffic app, it figures out where I am. If I don't say only while being used, I have given permission to say ways that does traffic to follow me literally everywhere I go. So um, I am astonished by the amount of information people publicly share on things like Facebook. Uh, again, set those privacy settings. Consider, would you stand on a rooftop and yell out whatever your status is? And if the answer is no, the privacy settings should probably be set to friends only. And, uh, and again, if you're in your device ensuring cameras are off, microphones are off, and location is off for any app that does not require that to be on. And today with um, Apple and Google and other manufacturers of devices, they're, they're building so much automation capabilities to try and help people um, go about their day and take tasks away or automatically remind you of tasks ahead of time. I find that quite fascinating too. So a very recent example for me was um, around 5 or 6 p.m. It told me that it would take me 15 minute drive to get to my favorite fast food joint. And I was like, yeah. well, how unhealthy do you think I am that every day at 5 p.m. <laughs> you think I want to go pick up some fast food? And I realized that the reason it did that was because the day before I went and picked up some fast food. So it thinks that today I'm going to go there again at around this time because I was within the neighborhood. And it's pretty funny, but they know, they literally know everything about you, your phone. We they use it do. for so many purposes. Uh, it really does know everything about you. Well, and we replaced our television this year early, like we had an older TV and we're like, it could last a year, it could last another 10 years, but we replaced it because we did the research and the new smart TVs that were coming out all had microphones integrated into the actual television. And this was the last generation where the microphone was integrated into the remote and could be turned off separately and, and physically removed if we wanted to get crazy and... <laughs> open up the remote. But uh, yeah, I did not want to get stuck with a smart TV that had a microphone embedded in it because I guess having developed software, people are hum like people are human. Humans make mistakes and those mistakes get embedded in the code. So I think that's another problem that we have. We were talking about how people trust the software. We also 
we assume it's not going to have mistakes in it, and it does. And so every time there is a, oh, Nest accidentally turned on their camera or this thing accidentally turned on the microphone, I don't, I don't trust any of it. So I don't trust the microphone that's supposed to be off not to accidentally turn on and record everything I'm saying. And that too with just the complexity of the ecosystem of different pieces of software and hardware that are interacting with each other, it's almost impossible to test everything thoroughly to ensure that they're going to behave in a specific way. So as people integrate various things, um, software and hardware do tend to you know, behave in unpredictable manners at times, which is, yeah, which is absolutely too. So let's switch topics a little bit. You have quite a bit of interesting background. And in particular, I want to learn more about your experience of sleeping on a riverboat over crocodiles <laughs> in the Panama Canal. Okay. So my family, we like adventure travel. Um, and uh, we were visiting Panama in the Gamboa area, which is off the canal, has a whole bunch of estuaries. And you can go and take all sorts of day trips on boats. And uh, you can see the crocodiles on the, some of them are on the land. You can see a hundred different monkeys. Um, and there's a place called Jungle Land in Gamboa. And it's this man, he's been there forever. And he has a riverboat. Um, I think there's about eight rooms on it that you could stay in that's inside the rainforest. And so the rooms, there's one bed and two hammocks um, that kind of hang from the ceiling, which was really awesome. And uh, the cook lives underneath, and so they make your food. Um, but we were there during the day, and everyone was jumping off the roof, and, and there were lots of people who visited during the day, and nobody talked about crocodiles during the day. Everyone was swimming in the water. That was fine. And then the day people left, and there were only two families left, that were staying overnight. So the guides that were there said, hey, you know, I know this really cool waterfall and we can kayak out there and everyone can jump off the waterfall. And we're like, this is great. So we kayaked out there and everyone was jumping. And then they looked at their watches and they said, we really need to get back because the crocodiles come out at dusk. And if we're not off the water, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> so, and I'm there with my kids. Like, I don't, it would have been one thing if it were just us, but I don't think I've ever kayaked so fast in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's through marshy ground and my daughter's kind of running her hands in the water and I'm like, hand it in, hand in. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was interesting because they're very laid back. I mean, that's also a very central South America attitude is very different mm -hmm. than North America. They're very chill. And I'm, I'm like, really? Like, how serious is this? They're like, oh, no, it's pretty serious. We really do need to get back and off the water before dark. And then even at night, we were having dinner, and our kids were playing with the other kids that were staying there, and they were kind of at the edge of the dock, and the guides, very chill, are like, yeah, they shouldn't be standing there. If they fall in, they'll get eaten. We're like, okay. <laughs> sure, we'll move them back. Um, but the experience was awesome. I mean, it was amazing to stay there and wake up in the morning to monkeys and birds and butterflies. And yeah, it's real rainforest. I, I have to say of all the places I've been, it's like 220 different kinds of snakes. I'm not really eager to go back hiking through those forests mm -hmm. because you don't know what you're going to get when you turn a corner. Uh, there was another one where we were walking and they said there was, I can't remember the name, it was a snake. And the guy said, oh, we'd seen one last week. I said, great. What do you do if you see it? He said, oh, it's too late. If you've seen it, you're done. <laughs> like, okay. So yeah, of all the places, I think I prefer colder climate hiking. Um, That's fair. Of all the, of all the animals, uh, snakes are something that I'm scared of and I try to stay yeah. away from. So, so I, I hear you, but that's a, that's such a great experience. It was super fun in the long run. It was really fun. Once we were off the water. 
<laughs> so, so is there any tips you have or anything you're doing that's a pandemic survival guide that you and your family are doing to stay busy and uh, distracted given current times? Uh, pandemic survival. I think breaks is the key. I know a lot of people are doing a lot of baking. Um, for, for me, I have an old uh, recumbent bike set up in front of an old TV. And so I've just been burning through movies I haven't seen in 20 years. And that's, that's been enlightening on how bad movies were in the 80s. But also, I guess that's 40 years. Um, also, <laughs> that's, it's been good to go back and, uh, yeah, and watch things I haven't seen in a long, long time. I think I went through every 80s dance movie I possibly had in the house. That's but exciting. It's been worth it. what's, your, what's your favorite <laughs> 80s dance movie? Oh, Dirty Dancing. It's got to be Dirty Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, Noel, Kat, thank you so much for your time. This has been fun and informative. Um, really excited to be able to catch up with you. And I hope we can actually meet in person sometime. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Great having you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.